environmental conversations on creative art, scholarship, and teaching. This, this is, is EcoCast. Hello and welcome to EcoCast, the official podcast of the Association for the Study of Literature and Environment. I'm Gemma Deer. And I am Brandon Golm. Today's guest is Cheryl J. Fish, and Cheryl is an environmental justice scholar, fiction writer, and poet. She was born in the Bronx and grew up in Flushing, Queens, New York City. She received her PhD from the City University of New York and is currently a professor of English at the Borough of Manhattan Community College. Before coming to focus on environmental justice humanities, she worked on 19th century African-American and women's travel writing. In 2007, Cheryl was a Fulbright professor at the University of Tampere, Finland, and was appointed a docent lecturer at the University of Helsinki in 2012. Her experience in Finland led to writing and lecturing as an ally on the significance of eco-media made by indigenous Sami filmmakers, photographers and art collectives, with a focus on critical responses to mining and extraction in the Arctic Sami areas that threaten Sami culture. Cheryl has been a poet since she was six years old and has been publishing poetry and fiction throughout her years as a PhD student, community college professor and single parent. In today's show, we're going to be focusing on her new book of poems, Crater and Tower, which examines disaster and trauma through reflections on the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption and the 2001 9-11 attacks. The poetry is based on geology, archival research, folklore, oral history and personal experience. Welcome, Cheryl, and thanks for coming on to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is um, quite an honor. Yeah. We're, gl- we're glad to have you and looking forward to hearing some of your poems. Great. So before we get to the poetry, we're going to turn to today's root word, um, which, because our focus is poetry, is the word verse. So in current usage, verse most often refers to a stanza or a section of, po- of a poem or to poetry in general, as opposed to prose. It comes from the Latin vertera, to turn, so named because of the turning involved in beginning a new line. If that seems at all odd to you, remember that even today we hit the return or return key to begin a new line. I like this meaning because it serves to remind us that reading and writing are embodied acts. We turn our eyes towards each new word and line, and if we find a text compelling, we might return to it again and again. But the turning of the verse also turns up in all sorts of other words. The turning of a year in anniversary, the turning inwards or outwards of introverts and extroverts, the turning away of aversion, the unsettling turning of vertigo and vortex, and the cosmic turns of the universe or multiverse. And I also chose this word because some of these other kinds of turns show up in Cheryl's poetry. The prologue is called a multiverse, perhaps playing on that doubling of senses between the poetic and the cosmic. And the first section of poems is titled Rock That Vortex. And perhaps, just by coincidence, There are a few other turning things that show up in the poems. There's a hula hoop and a carousel and a turnpike. There's mention of tossing and turning and the return of species. And of course, thematically, the poems of Crater and Tower are about returning to past traumas 
or about how these traumas return and infect or affect the present. So Cheryl, the collection, as I said in the introduction, is a response to both the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption and the 9-11 terrorist attack. Before we get to actually looking at some of the individual poems, can I get you to say a little bit more about why you personally wanted to write about these events and what made you want to bring them together? Yes, that's a great question, Gemma. Um, well, I couldn't write after 9-11, as um, you would expect. I saw the whole thing happen. I was evacuated. I live and teach about five blocks from Ground Zero. Um, so I, I was traumatized. I had PTSD. Uh, while I got my two-year-old son out of his daycare is when the first tower crumbled and it sounded like a bomb. Um, it was just an unfathomable experience of terror and fear. And um, I had no desire to write about it at first. Uh, then, you know, you take some notes or you write down some things in a journal. You see what other people have written in the immediate aftermath. But I just didn't feel that I had anything really to say that wasn't just too fresh, too new, uh, too unexamined. And um, and then I would cry and tremble if people asked me to talk about it. But then in 2010, so that's nine years later, I was part of a group of writers invited to the Pulse Gathering of Scientists who every five years return to Mount St. Helens to measure ecological change. And they have all different specialties. And um, uh, so I was with about a group of a dozen, mostly writers. There were a couple of visual artists in the mix. and. Um, as soon as I got there, um, I felt in my body the entirety of 9-11. I think it was seeing that crater, that smashed-in crater of what was once a majestic cascade volcanic peak, seeing the pumice plain, which had once been an old-growth rainforest, which was now a desiccated uh, plain of um, pumice, um, which is, you know, the remains of uh, the tephra and ash that, that came from Mount St. Helens. And then um, what really set me off was this memorial that someone had put of someone um, who had like a summer home up near the volcano. And um, there were ashes in like a little urn and there was a photograph of her and flowers. Uh, so the whole thing was just an incredibly moving, even as I talk about it now, I feel it in my body. Uh, the whole thing just like um, came pouring out of me. And, we didn't have Wi-Fi really, although I have a poem about getting bars on your phone at certain spots. So we had, you know, we were charged, the, the writers were charged with kind of writing this experience from a non-scientific point of view or to supplement, you know, the scientific's point of view with um, a more humanistic, reflective um, uh, aspect. So we kept notes and journals and I started to muse about things and, and that was sort of the birth of this of this project. Um, so the book came out in 2020, so that's 10 years. Uh, it was 10 years in the making from, um, from the time I started writing notes and started maybe the first poem that, um, I'm not sure if that the first poem made it even into the collection. That's great. So I think let's let's jump in then, and and you're, you're talking about these these kind of comparisons, and so we've we've asked you to to kind of. Uh, we're gonna in a second here to read two poems that one that kind of sets up you know this the the um, volcano and one that sets up nine eleven. So um, 
whenever you're ready, go ahead. And, and okay. the first one is going to be Volcanic Panic. And then the second poem will be Smoke. I just want to say that Volcanic Panic originally appeared in Terrain, uh, the electronic um, environmental journal uh, edited by Simmons Bunting, who was also at the Pulse Gathering with me um, in 2010. So it's interesting that um, you, you asked me to read this particular poem. Hmm. Okay. So it starts with um, an, um, an epigram. Many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, Daniel 12.2. Volcanic panic. One. Poets and scientists struggle to explain, to grasp volcanology. A pyroclastic flow is rapid, turbulent, hot gas undulating, escaping fragments, ash, rock, lahar, mud flow, fires flying in liquid, domes collapsing upon themselves. We cannot stay away. Two, private property cannot appease public needs. The towers fell in fragments, scattered beneath the rubble, spirits smoldering. Three, large tongues of lapilli, Italian for the ash of Vesuvius, remain. Species return, some new to the Cascade Plain where forest had been. We still live with the embers. What about a simple memorial, a national monument for all who pray or cry? Volcanic insides expose hot air. Who may speak of rebuilding? Light hits the pit where rubble lingers. I hear something. And now a uh, smoke. Smoke alights, sinister plume angled by the wind off the towers before they crumbled. It could go this way or that. Brooklyn, Jersey, uptown, underground, any town, my town, into Canada, a hole in the sky between your eyelashes touching silk defiling plants and water, reaching into mother's milk, tooth and nostril, the world's outer inner line, black smoke of a thousand chemical drifts, white smoke of annihilation, red smoke of pain's regeneration, blue smoke of ocean crest, true bleeding in the marsh of landfill, smoke in a blanket of rain. Thank you so much for reading those. Um, do you want to start by just, I don't know, telling us a little bit of the story and the and the background of each of the poems? Okay. Um, some poems have more explicit background than others. Uh, these two, these two are less related to archival research than some of the others. Many of the others were spurred by my archival research, which I did after returning from Mount St. Helens. Um, so these ones were more based on observation. So uh, Volcanic Panic was um, partly based on trying to explain how do you explain a volcano? And there's the scientific explanation and the 
terminology that is so fascinating, like mud lahar, for example. And, um, but then there's um, the political aspects, like private property, um, which were issues at both places. Um, in some of the poems I talk about um, uh, that Ronald Reagan wanted to buy the crater of Mount St. Helens, for example. Um, the United States government um, tried to buy it, and um, it was it did become a national monument at some point. And then um, while I was writing this book, and uh, one of the people I met at the post gathering um, was telling me about the different um, logging and mining interests that were trying to come to the area around Mount St. Helens and the uh, and the Gifford Pinchard State Forest, which is right next to Mount St. Helens. And of course, 9/11 was fraught with politics of um, who would build the next tower, which is now called the Freedom Tower, and um, what kind of memorial would we have versus um, what kind of commerce would come back. And um, I was very upset by that. I was very upset at the idea of um, commerce coming before uh, lives that were lost and coming before mourning and coming before memorials. So um, in both cases, I feel in this poem, I was trying to explore some of those tensions between um, the spiritual um, feelings um, and death, like uh, using that quote from the Bible, even though I'm not a religious person in general, and um, you know, I, I, I'm not personally, but I am a spiritual person. And then um, the, um, the legacy of Vesuvius, of course, Mount Vesuvius, um, that uh, Mount St. Helens had, you know, is the same sort of type of volcano. And this idea that you hear something. Um, so there was talk after 9-11 about the people in the pit and the bones and the ancestors, people's ancestors and what to do. And that took a long time to sort out. I have another poem about bones being found years later as they're developing buildings in lower Manhattan, still finding bones, you know, from 9-11. And um, it's the same feeling with the volcano, um, you know, just um, evoking death and destruction and um, a spiritual um, stirring the spirits. So, so that's where this poem was kind of coming from. And then smoke, I think I would say it's, it's, a, it's an environmental justice poem in that smoke crosses borders, you know? Smoke crosses all mm. borders, that um, there is no such thing as a border when it comes to smoke. Um, as Sandra Steingraber wrote about um, living downstream, we all live downstream, right? So in a, in a way, this, this poem is about the way smoke from the towers traveled, and so did the ash from Mount St. Helens, interestingly, so that was another commonality in both of them, and um, the way that it affects your body. Um, I mentioned mother's milk in this poem, um, and I, I use different colors, um, the colors that evoke um, the starkness of the colors of um, the environmental um, disasters as well as the healthy environments. Um, colors, of course, from Native, Native American people, the use of color is really important in their, in their storytelling. And, um, and um, spirituality. And um, in this poem, I didn't put my own personal um, body uh, in that I have some particles lodged in my lung from 9-11. I have that in another poem, but um, I think the um, defiling plants and water and reaching into mother's milk, um, I wanted to bring, I wanted to bring it into um, the body 
in the way that um, all the disasters um, affect actual bodies. Human and non-human, human and non-human life, human mm -hmm. and other than human life is a big theme in this collection. To, to go, to build on that kind of um, notion where you're, you're talking about smoke, not um, respecting borders. And, and I, I think that really kind of struck me in both the poems. I mean, you know, Lava kind of does that too, has that sort of spreading, but also the poems um, perform it in another way in that, you know, you have these, um, these words that come in from outside of English. So you, you mentioned lahar, which, which comes from Javanese, um, and obviously the, the Italian word lapilli. Um, so there's a kind of breaking down of borders there. Um, and also, you know, for, for the benefit of those who can't see the poems, um, the first stanza, for instance, of Volcanic Panic, there's not much punctuation at all. There's just this kind of flow of, of words um, onto each line, um, which I guess also seems to be trying to perform that, that um, flow of lava. Um, and, and the same thing with, with smoke, really. There's this kind of, there's a, a lack of division between some of the lines um, as if the the smoke is actually uh, sorry as if the words are kind of performing that smoke yes that's that's a great observation uh, yes and um of course you know vol volcanology is an international field and um there are volcanic areas many many areas like where you mentioned indonesia of course is a highly volcanic area and so it's, I guess it's no wonder that a lot of the terminology comes from other languages. Hmm. I, I want to jump back to something you you, would, you were talking about uh, when you first started uh, speaking about volcanic panic uh, and this idea of, of explaining um, and having to explain something that is, you know, um, something like volcanology, which has its own kind of complex language and terminology and things like that. Um, but I was also struck. So what's interesting to me about kind of the parallel of, of these um, two events um, is I'm, I'm thinking of this from as a, from a teaching perspective is so right now, right. A lot of our incoming students um, most likely at this point, I believe were not born right? We're born after the events. Um, some of our students might have been just a year or two old. Uh, and so they, they have uh, hardly any, you know, all of their memories of this event were perhaps um, formed for them through um, culture and through, you know, the repetition of, of memorialization and things like that. Um, and so something like, like, you know, 1980, I would have been a year old at that point. And so, um, I have no memory or recollection of that event. And, and, and so, and, and obviously we have um, all these different, um, these kind of tragic um, things, they happen and they become these kind of, of pillars of memory um, for us and, and for people to experience in different ways. But I'm just curious um, in, in kind of explaining, what do you feel maybe the role is for poetry or creative work to try to explain not only those events, um, but also maybe the um, society and culture that surrounded those events, as well as maybe the trauma of living through those events? Yeah, that's a great question and a great point. And I did 
share some of these poems with my students. And um, I think also being in a pandemic right now, it's a very powerful time to relate to these other disasters and the sense of not knowing and not understanding what it means and, and um, uh, being unsure of how to process the trauma that we're all feeling. So um, the politics surrounding both these events are in the poems. So one of the things, like I have a poem, Dear Governor Ray, that she was the governor of Washington, the first woman governor of Washington state at the time. And so that poem is about how, um, how people wrote to the governor and told her how to fix the volcano and told her that they should throw people in jail who went into the red zone. And so it evokes a lot of what we're going through now with people wearing masks or not wearing masks. Or hmm. like when I evacuated my students, I told them, don't look at the people jumping from the tower. I said, just go home now because they're probably going to shut down the subways and buses, which of course they did. So when you tell the surrounding anecdotes and the contexts, I think, even if people didn't live through it, they can relate it to whatever is happening now, you know? Uh, so the environmental justice movement and the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, have a lot of overlaps uh, because um, environmental racism is a key component of environmental justice. So so um, even if they weren't around, like even though I'm, my college is blocks away from where Occupy Wall Street was and it was only not that long ago, but many of my students never heard of it. So I think a lot of what we have to do as teachers with memory is, is we need to, um, to show the images because our students respond so much mm -hmm. to the visual and, and talk about it and maybe relate it to what's happening in the present because there's always a way to relate it to what's happening in the present. It just seems that there's always something, right? Uh, there's always something that... Um, that is happening now. And um, it was just the, the 40th anniversary of the Mount St. Helens eruption um, this May. So it was in the news a lot, for example, and this September 11 is the 19th anniversary. Um, because of the pandemic, they're not gonna read the names of the victims out loud like they do every year. Uh, they're gonna do something, I think, on, on a video chat instead of uh, the families of the victims are still invited to come, but they'll have to social distance, et cetera. So I think just saying things like that, um, my students are very curious. They really want to know what happened on 9-11, even if they weren't born. Mm -hmm. um, the last poem in my book, Grapple, is about my son going into the 9-11 museum. And just, just a few years ago, he was only two when it happened. So he had no problem going into the room, the room where it happened, which is a common term now from Miranda, right? Uh, but anyway, the, I didn't, couldn't go in that room. I couldn't go in the room where it showed the whole events of 9-11. I just had no. And, and my neighbors who I went with to that museum on the day that it's open to residents and first responders, we couldn't go in there. But my son, had, you know, he didn't have the emotional um, and powerful, emotional, traumatic feeling. He was curious. So I think there is a great curiosity. There's a great um, openness to hearing about these things. And then um, I think we, we do need to remind people of what happened because um, we, have to keep, we have to keep the memories alive and the politics, like that we were told to go home, come home. At one week after 9-11 happened, Christy Todd Whitman said it was safe to come back, and it was not. Okay, so when we hear things happening now and we're not sure what's safe with the pandemic, 
we could bring up the story of how we were told to come home right after 9-11 and we weren't safe at all. Mm-hmm. One one kind of um, difference that, that strikes me between these two events and what we're going through now is that is that these two event, events really leave this kind of visible scar on the landscape, right? Um, yes. which are, you know, obviously also reflected in the in the title of the collection. Um, and so, yeah, I just wondered whether you can talk about, like, how, what that means to you, like, what, 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 what's significant or special about this, like, real sort of um, bodily memory scarring of the landscape, this kind of very physical trauma? Oh, it's very important to me, and I'd say it's a key aspect of um of the poetry in the book just the way that um that everything changes the landscape changes and then the poem um chance played a role about how certain species lived because they were buried under the snow the spring snow uh, so they survived whereas other species were wiped out and then new species came in but that's in nature in nature um in the scientific term is succession for what comes after something. And um, so the scientists were, were surprised at how fast the habitats recovered at Mount St. Helens. And I felt like 9-11 was, was the opposite. It was um, the Anthropocene, it was human greed. It was putting money and capital over human life. So um, I was very interested in the rebuilding and what will, you know, what will replace the towers, what can we do when something like this happens, just as I'm now very upset by all the new towers going up, not only in New York City, but globally. I travel a lot, not now, obviously, but um, so um, I've seen this um, neoliberal capital, uh, massive development um, going on in many parts of the world, often, uh, often buildings that are uninhabited they're just used for investments while there's all the homeless people who have nowhere to live. And so I'm very interested in what we do with landscape built, so-called built and natural, but you know, that's a false dichotomy, I think. It's built and natural, but we do use mm-hmm. those terms. Um, uh, none of it feels natural, really. It's all, it's all in conjunction, I think, with, um, with agency. So I'm, I'm just very interested in, in how a disasters transform landscape, and I think um, this pandemic is is totally transforming the landscape in major ways as well. Well, so you just you mentioned it in your response there, so I think maybe now's a good time. Let's shift and hear a couple more of your poems. Okay. Uh, first, we'll start with disaster tourism, and then um, the one that you just mentioned, chance plays a role. Okay. So disaster tourism is actually not about 9/11 and Mount St. Helens. It's about Hurricane Sandy or Superstorm Sandy. Uh, which happened later. Disaster tourism after Superstorm Sandy. Gape at water rising on your street, crossing a barricade, and a park cascading past a highway. Cobblestone, not quaint, in a flood. Water rushes into subway stations, caressing Zuccotti Park, foaming at the mouth where they removed the occupiers one by one, peeled them from benches, kicked in tents. Water wastes no words, expunges, urges. Humans recoil. Our wired world silenced. Electricity mute in darkness. 
blown circuits, wet interchanges, fingers in sockets, cell phones inert, low-lying luxury homes upended, amusement parks reduced to distended parts, ferris wheel submerged in seaweed, cars, legs, planks, pathos, gaping politicos. Who can we call? Homes and honesty affronted, encroaching jiggy-jiggy boom-boom. Like tourists, we line up, but won't change our currency. We don't protect the mother of all mothers. Surprise ingested like mer medical marijuana. Bite your tongue. Wait it out. Pray. Change must be a full-time affair, not when we decide to stop texting. Run to anti-apocalypse. The sustaining, remaining, extinction, rebellions of this time, our time. And um, chance played a role? Chance played a role in rebuilding biological communities, patches of elders, clumps of sedges, fireweed, Creatures made their way in new habitats after 14 miles of ash and snow-induced mud flow. Erosion made desert-like soil. Survivors, like those who fled the Twin Towers safely, those who never went to work that day, saplings and shrubs buried in spring snow, lived through the blast that killed taller trees. Hangers-on created a new legacy rich in nitrogen and carbon. Traveling salamanders did well in gopher tunnels. Red-legged frogs, endangered elsewhere, thrive at St. Helens. Human-induced climate change, not like a volcano. The Hudson River, hugging lower Manhattan in a flood zone. Towers blockade the sky in our windows. Humans meander among machines, dreaming of messengers in the shape of animals and stars. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I want to talk uh, first about the disaster tourism one, because um, I think it, it, it speaks a little bit to, uh, well, the, this idea of disaster tourism speaks a little bit to something we were just talking about a few minutes ago about um, memorials or museums or, or the ways that these um, things kind of pop up after events. Um, and so I, I have um, my, my uh, dissertation was on post-Katrina literature. And so I have kind of a complicated relationship to the idea of disaster tourism. Because uh, on the one hand, um, I think it's positive um, in the ways that you were just talking about, because it's allowing people that um, either didn't experience it or weren't born at the time or whatever the case may be to understand a little bit more about what happened and um, the history and the complexities surrounding that thing. But on the other hand, um, it's it almost seems exploitative in some ways to um, to be kind of uh, making money or or making spectacle of that event in order for for people to come in and just uh, right that it's it's tourism you're coming in and you're leaving you're not living the experience you're not um, it's not a lasting experience for you so I was wondering if you could maybe speak a little bit to to some of those ideas or themes either in in these poems or other poems of your of your collection yeah um, well it's a it's a very important idea to me as well and actually I went on one of the disaster tours post Katrina 
because I mm -hmm. also have written about Louisiana. I've written about um, uh, Judith Helfand's film Blue Vinyl, which has um, is about Cancer Alley and is about manufacturing there. Um, but I made sure I went on um, a tour that was small. We didn't get out. We didn't take pictures of people. We, mm -hmm. you know, it wasn't disruptive. Um, and it was recommended to me. I asked someone I respected who was who was um, a poet from New Orleans if she knew, you know, if she had a suggestion and she told me where to go. So I think there are ways of doing it. I mean, we're, we're curious. Humans are curious, right? We want to see these things. But, um, but should we be going on boat rides to see the glaciers melting in Antarctica? I'm not so sure, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and should, I mean, now what I work on is, you know, people trying to build railroads through through the Arctic to exploit, you know, to exploit um, the melting ice, to exploit, uh, make commerce out of it. So obviously I think that's wrong. Um, but just if you're a curious person and you want to understand something and you want to um, possibly write about it or make art about it or do something positive out of it, then I think, you know, that's different. So that's this poem about Superstorm Sandy. I was, um, I was going through it. I was living through it. You know, people, there was no power in lower Manhattan for over a week. Um, it was shocking to see, you know, this center of commerce, a large, you know, American and, you know, you know, a global city that was just totally wiped out by, by weather. It was a real warning, I feel. Um, so, so this poem was kind of, you couldn't help but gape at what was going on, even as it was happening to you. Mm -hmm. But um, the thing that upsets me are the people that sell 9-11, you know, scrapbooks down by the tower, the people with the selfie sticks taking photos, um, giggling and laughing, and uh, that whole thing. So, I mean, it's hard. You can't really control it, you know, because people are curious and and people handle uh, history in very different ways, right? People's relationship to historical events and historical trauma is very individualized. And, and it's the American way to make everything into um, profit, right? It's, it's the American mm -hmm. way <laughs> to sell experience um, in one way or another. But so my answer to your question is, um, as you said, I think there can be productive there could be productive ways of, um, if we don't want to call it disaster tourism, maybe surveying the aftermath of something in a very responsible way that's not disruptive, that respects the, you know, the disaster and the local people who are living, still living there, rebuilding or trying to reclaim their lives. Um, I think there are ways to respect it and there are ways that obviously don't respect it. Uh, Spike Lee's films, when the levees broke, I think was the most interesting post-Katrina uh, um, visual work that I have seen. And also um, uh, the film about the bathtub. It wasn't about Katrina, but what was the name of that uh, film? Peace of the Southern Wild. I thought that was a really interesting film. So those two works for me were like really interesting post-Katrina visual works that I'm aware of. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it's also interesting too. I mean, as you were talking, thinking about in what ways are you know these these fictions and poetries and documentaries um, are also in some ways uh, kind of touristy, right? We're spending a uh -huh. finite period of time with them um, just in order to to learn a little bit more about that experience or understand a little bit more. But it's for a lot of us, it's not 
um, anything that we, we can put it away, right? I can put that book on the shelf True. and I'm no longer dealing with the realities of that situation. And, um, that, that, uh, the traumas of, of those things and in, in, in a lot of ways. So it's true. Mm. But one would hope, I think my hope is that if people read a book or see a movie or listen to a poetry reading that, um, that it makes them feel empathy for, for other people. Mm -hmm. Um, and that even Absolutely. if they didn't go through it, that they can, that they can understand, um, deeper on a deeper level. And yes, we are all tourists. It's like, I always say, sometimes you can't help but be a tourist. It, even though I don't like traditional tourism, sometimes you just have to be a tourist. I prefer to work to work in a country where I visit or to do some something that's not just pure tourism, but sometimes I'm a tourist. Sometimes you can't help it. So you have to, I think you have to try to be a more responsible uh, kind of tourist as best mm. you can. And not an ugly, not a so-called ugly American. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway... Um, it's a it's a really interesting topic, I think. Mm. One thing that that I wanted to draw out that kind of struck me when you were, you know, talking about this tension between the importance of memory of 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 remembering, but you know, in a non evasive way, and and there's that um, towards the end of disaster tourism, you use this phrase extinction rebellions, um, which obviously is also the name of an activist group. And it just kind of, you know, it got me thinking about the the way that um, memory can also, you know, go extinct. The past can be kind of pushed into extinction if we don't actively remember it. So there's like a, um, a kind of alignment between this like biological um regeneration and and kind of rebellion against extinction and and the work that we do um as humans um and then that kind of you know also like seeing it next to or hearing it next to chance play a role where you're sort of talking about this this rebuilding of the biological communities um and the way that you know species that uh may not have been there before or, or sorry you say red-legged frogs endangered elsewhere thrive at St. Helens so that they're they're being some kind of um also like fertile re regeneration to to come through that so I wonder if you can just talk a little bit about that about the way that you see the relation between um you know the life of memory and and the life of of organic beings yeah well we we have memory our species is blessed with, I guess, blessed or cursed with memory. <laughs> so, so we we should make something of it. I think. Why are we artists? Why do we make art? Why do we write? Why do we make film? Why do we sing? Um, I think we have um, we have the power to do something with memory to make it transformative, uh, because. Um, it has a lot of power to us as individuals, but then what do we do with the memory? Uh, so the, the adding Extinction Rebellion in that poem was actually an edit that I put in because it was one of the later revisions in the manuscript. And I, I wanted to connect the Occupy movement, which is referred to earlier in the poem, with a, you know, a, a later movement, which was um, the Extinction Rebellion had already started. So I wanted to link uh, movements for social and environmental justice, um, economic justice, and obviously um, 
if it was written today, I might also evoke the Black Lives Matter movement uh, about racial justice. Um, so the, the racial, uh, there are some racial elements in these poems, um, like um, uh, the poem about Marcy Borders, um, who was known as Dust Lady. She, she's an African-American woman uh, who was photographed as sort of a symbol of 9-11. And then um, indigenous uh, Native American people uh, I was very interested in how they saw, you know, how they saw the area around Mount St. Helens. They had a totally different relationship. They respected it and they wouldn't have built and developed. And then in 9-11, um, I, I was interested in the Lenape people whose land Manhattan Island is on and um, what it was like and how they lived. And so there's a poem about um, the kinds of shelters that they lived in and um, dwelled upon. So I think, you know, I bring up memory there. I bring up memory of past communities in both places because um, I feel it's really important to look at how our places were inhabited before modern man, before so-called, you know, industrial age, uh, post-industrial age or the age of the Anthropocene or whatever you want to call it, the capital of scene, but just how, how are people living and what can we gain by thinking back about the way they lived. And um, for instance, I was, before the pandemic, I was just in Australia and um, my first time there. And um, I was reading about how finally they're going to listen to some Aboriginal ideas about putting out fires uh, because, you know, Aboriginals have been living with fires and handling them for way, way longer than the settlers who came later to Australia. So um, finally, maybe we're going to look at Indigenous um, beliefs and ways of taking care of some of these challenges. So I hope um, as, a, as an ally, as a non-Indigenous person, that um, I see my role as in, as in educating other people and in, um, you know, in collaborating, in, um, in making alliances and um, connecting with people across our differences. I think that's a very important thing to do. And, and um, so we should use memory. Uh, we should use memory to inform people who are willing to listen to what we have to say in different ways. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, I think that's a really, really great uh, point to kind of, you know, summarize everything and, and, and wrap up our, our conversation today. So, um, you know, thank you for, for joining us and, and discussing on this, but before we, we let you go, we always have to, uh, do our, our segment of let's end on a roll. So I've got a 12 sided die here and we've got 12 possible questions. So I'm going to go ahead and roll the die and whatever number comes up, that's the, the question we're going to finish with. We have, I feel like this die, if, if the, for those of you listening, um, it, it's coming up with a lot of the same numbers over and over again, but I promise there are 12 <laughs> questions. Anyways, this is number 10. Uh, so what's one habit you're working on to try and be more eco-friendly? Oh, great. Okay. So um, I have been a composter for a long time, but now since the pandemic, New York City has stopped our composting program. I'm very, very upset. So I'm trying to get the composting program back. And then um, I'm also um, I'm upset that um, that I still sometimes use disposable seltzer, you know, fizzy water. Mm. Uh, I try to cut way back on it, and um, and I I carry my own 
metal straw. I don't use plastic straws when I can help it. I, I carry, you know, my own straw, but um, still not perfect when it comes to certain use of plastics. So um, uh, that's that's something. But um, I think there are many more areas where I can improve, and um, where we all can improve. I think. Sure. Um, yeah. Also, um, I'd say I teach a lot about food justice, so I think it would be, I think it's very important to cut down on eating meat, even if you're not able or willing to be a total vegetarian or vegan. I think awareness of how um, eating less meat could really help uh, help the planet on a lot of levels. So those are that's an area that I'm working to personally, and also that I'm bring up with my students, many of whom are not aware of factory farming and uh, where their food comes from. So those are a couple of areas that are meaningful. Great. All right. So um, why don't you tell people a little bit where they can get a hold of you? Uh, if you have you know, a website, where they can they find your book or your, your previous work, social media, any of that kind of stuff where people can connect? Okay. So I have a website that's pretty much just my name, like... Um, HTTP colon backslash backslash www.cheryljfish.com. It's not the most up to date. I'm unfortunately I need to <laughs> I need to <laughs> update it, but it, it has it has some stuff on it. And um, Crater and Tower is is from a small press, Duck Lake Books, out of um, Washington State. But the book is readily available on ind ind independent press. Um, websites, Indie Press, or if, if you are on Amazon, you can get it there, or Google, or Barnes & Noble, or uh, Books A Million, or it's a, it's widely available online from um, many different uh, websites, so Crater and Tower. Uh, I use the and symbol instead of the word and, the, um, <laughs> the and symbol. And um, I'm also on Twitter at Cheryl Joy Fish. Same with Instagram at Cheryl Joy Fish. And then I'm on Facebook, Cheryl J Fish. Uh, so all of those um, social media outlets, uh, you can get in touch with me. Uh, and you're welcome to email me or um, contact me if you have any questions um, about the book or environmental justice or anything else that, um, as long as it's as it's positive. Great. Yeah. We'll be sure everyone to, to check out that. Like I said, we'll have uh, all that information will be in the show notes as well. So you can um, easily, easily yeah. see that. I also have a blog post on a blog called Enviro, Enviro History that is, um, that mentions some of my latest environmental justice research on, um, on Echo Media, including um, art collectives that are uh, from, the Sami areas of Scandinavia, as well as from Peru, and um, some of the Standing Rock indigenous art that um, is basically fighting back against mining, fracking, and things like that. So it's a it's a blog post on that, and um, you can probably find my my critical essays fairly easily as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you again for for joining us and talking with us and sharing some of your work. We really appreciate you being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm I really um, enjoyed being here.
Thank you so much, Cheryl, for coming on the show and sharing your wonderful poems with us. And of course, anyone who's listening, we would recommend that you um, go and check out the full collection. Um, but otherwise, if you have an idea for an episode, um, if you want to come on the show yourself and talk about your work, or if you have a suggestion for us, for someone that you'd love to hear from, um, then you can email us at uh, asley.ecocast at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter um, at asley underscore ecocast and we would love to hear from you. 